0: Hello, my name is Stephen Smith, and this is the ABA Business Leaders podcast. This is part one of our five-part series with Oswin Latimer. If you would like to watch the entire conversation, please check out our ABA Business Leaders membership at www3 2com You'll also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and if you do enjoy this podcast... Please subscribe or add it to your favorites so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, uh, hello everyone watching. Uh, Thank you uh, for watching. And uh, today we have uh, an awesome guest. I'm super excited for this presentation. We will have a five uh, presentation series. Uh, it is with Oswin Latimer in, and um, is a lifelong advocate for practices and policies of issues of importance for autistic people. As a recognized expert and leader in the field, they work to empower people to have a voice in the direction and quality of their lives. Their experience in leadership, education, research, and public advocacy for issues surrounding autistic people have made them a highly respected consultant, public speaker, and presenter for bo- both nationally and locally. Super excited to have you on. Thank you so much for doing this, Oswin, uh, and I can't wait.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, so uh, this is gonna be the first of six, I believe, um, of these that we're doing and um, today we're going to focus on um, just or and the series is below the surface of autistic behavior. Um, Today we're going to be focusing on reframing what is autistic behavior. Um, a lot of times when we think about autistic behaviors, we're, we're just looking at the surface level of what's going on with the person, and um, especially within ABA, we are trying to take that apart and, um, and change that behavior. But if we don't keep in mind um, exactly what that is, then we can lose sight of um, how we can really um, help autistic people um, learn to access their environment. And we'll get into it. So first of all, I'm going to um, stipulate that I am going to be using identity first language rather than person first language. Um, this is a um, preference of the autistic community. So um, I've got references down below on um, on language use. Um, and what we know is that anywhere from 66 to 75% of autistic people prefer identity first language to person first language. Um, and I know that that's different from what you're n- used to within um, clinical settings, but um, uh, it is the preference of the community. So um, what we have with autistic people is, um, or what autism is and best can be described is a neurodevelopmental condition that's, um, that has a marked difference from the norm and executive functioning sensory processing and social, um, social, social Thank you. Sorry. Um, um, that, so when we look at each individual thing, um, or if, when we look at autism as a whole, if we can keep in mind that all three of these things kind of go together, um, to create what we know of as an autistic person, then we can, um recognize that these things need to be supported rather than necessarily just changing the end product behavior so first is our executive functioning um, and uh what we know from research is that um, in autistic people all areas of executive functioning are affected um this is our initiation so our ability to start a task um, and that's any task that can be getting up in the morning. Um, one of the ways that we see this a lot is um, in the way that we communicate we um, uh, this is a diagnostic criteria of um, having trouble initiating conversation. This comes from your executive functioning piece. Um, we have our inhibition and um, while autistic people don't have problems with um, impulse control, which is the opposite end of this, um, we do tend to um, be, or we tend to overly inhibit which then gets into our initiation um, and this is just um, our ability to um, to stop ourselves before we do something. Um, and then we have organization which is the organizational organization of your actual physical materials um, is what's involved here. So we see a marked difference in our organization and I will get into how that kind of ties in with our sensory processing. Um, and then uh, we have planning. Planning is our ability to do anything from actually planning a task. But um, when I say a task, I, I really want you to think of it uh, much bigger than sitting down to um at a desk um to do an assignment. Um, planning goes into literally everything we do. So um, our ability to speak requires um, motor planning, um, oral motor motor planning. Our ability to move our bodies um, is also motor planning. So all these things can be affected by, uh, in autistic people. Um, Then we have working memory, and this is one of the few areas that autistic people tend to actually have better working memory than the general population. Um, But because of that, you also, this is where we get into info dumping and and um and that high level of um being able to talk about your interest uh, a specific interest is because we have really good working memory so um when somebody says something it automatically can trigger a a thought so if you sometimes even um when you're listening to a person and they say something that you can tell that they're getting it from like a movie or a song then that's automatically going to trip that um, working memory piece and you're probably going to have uh, this is where you can end up with a lot of echolalia um, where one thing then cues a whole series of thoughts and sometimes those are going to be produced um, auditorily Um, self-monitoring is one that autistic people tend to not be very good at um, because it takes a a lot of cognitive process um but this is just keeping in mind your time management and your um and looking at your mistakes um this is one of those other things that we typically see um, with autistic children um especially school age is that that inability to um to come back and look at um At their work once they're done because self monitoring is a piece that we struggle with Um, shift is our ability to go from one task to another task, and this is. um, Most commonly targeted within aba from with um, your goals around um, going from a preferred task to a non preferred task, Um, but what we actually know is that even going from a preferred task to a preferred task can be difficult and going from a non-preferred task to a preferred task can be difficult because it requires us to be able to stop thinking about what we're currently doing and switch over Um, and so some of the ways that we accommodate for this is um giving wait time before or giving advance notice of um that a change is about to come so we can prepare for that And then finally is our emotional regulation and our emotional regulation is also impacted because of some of our sensory needs and because we have a hard time um, recognizing our own internal state um, to be able to regulate. Um, So it is and um, with emotional regulation, this is something that we see with all neurodevelopmental conditions. not just autism but also ADHD and dyslexia and dysgraphia, that all these end up having a very hard time with that self-regulation piece. Now, that's our one, our first thing, right? Um, and this is what we know from research. We also know from research that sensory processing is a thing. Um, and I know that a lot of BCBAs um, are told that there's no science behind it, but I mean, it. Um, if we're looking at our DSM-5 criteria, then two of our three restrictive and repetitive behaviors are all centering around our sensory processing disorders. Um, so um, autistic sensory systems are more likely to be hyper or hypo, um, sensitive to external and internal sensations. Um, so this can be anything from being hypersensitive to your clothing um, and hypersensitive to... Um, to visuals and auditory stimuli to being under stimulated. So um, if you see somebody that is sensory seeking a lot, this typically is a sign of a hyposensitive um, sensory system. And our eight, and I forgot to label these, and I apologize for that. Um, But our eight um, areas of sensory processing are visual, auditory, gustatory, olfactory, tactile, proprioceptive, vestibular and interoception and now those last three are not the most common ones that most people know within your five senses the other ones um, i'm not gonna go like overly into our primary five um, senses because i think everyone knows how you experience those but um our proprioceptive is our um ability to um or is our movement so Um, If we see somebody that's constantly running and crashing into things, then we're looking at somebody that has a hyposensitive proprioceptive system. Whereas if we see somebody that is a little bit more, um, doesn't like a whole lot of movement, maybe doesn't like to go swinging, doesn't like to go down slides, then we're looking at a hypersensitive proprioceptive system. Our vestibular system is our ability to balance. So um, this is also going to give us our body in space and time. So if you see somebody that's really wiggly in their seat, um, but doesn't necessarily need to get up and move around, this is probably because they are just trying to feel their body in space, which would be a hyposense of vestibular. And then our interoception is is the new one to the game. And that is our ability to recognize or um, to sense our internal states. Our interoception is our internal sensations. So that's our ability to feel hungry. This is our ability to know if we need to use the bathroom. This is our ability um, to um, recognize when our internal body is doing things. So if our heart starts racing, um, being able to recognize recognize those things. Um, it can also be our internal pain sensations. Um, we might not be able to um, sense those, or we might have an oversense of these things. So we might be, so somebody might end up um, recognizing the instant they get hungry, even if they had food 30 minutes before. Um, that's one of those ways that sensory processing can, ha- can affect things. And um, I've got several links on um, how we know that this is true. Um, how we know that sensory stimuli is physically painful, um, that that it activates those um, pain centers in your brain. Um, so when we look at things like um, stemming, especially when somebody stems a lot, if we're trying to suppress that, then what we are doing is telling the person's brain, hey, you are not allowed to have that information get into your body. And that... Um, means that the person then has to overcome both the fact that they can't feel their body and now trying to keep it still which is um adds to your cognitive load and uh, something that we really don't want to do to an autistic person then finally our sociability and this is where um this is an emerging emerging field um where we talk about double empathy problems so um There's notable differences between the ways that autistic people socialize and the way that neurotypical people socialize. And that when um, we get into, and um, a lot of these studies will look at it, um, what we see is that autistic people tend to have a pretty similar developmental track with their social um, interaction and sociability and the ways that we interact with other people. And we've got things like um, we know that neurotypical people can tell by just a thin glance at an autistic person that they know that they don't want to be our friends, and that's really upsetting. But like it, it plays or it shows that autistic people maybe not necessarily are um, the only problem within a um, two-way relation or um, interaction that if somebody goes into that interaction automatically knowing that they feel something off about the person and don't want to be their friend then um, there's going to be a little bit more conflict in that interaction and I'm not going to use I'm not using conflict to mean arguments or something I'm just talking about um, conflicting standpoints of where we come in from Um, and this has to do with the fact that people or the autistic people are experiencing their sensory surroundings a little bit more differently. And the fact that we are um, not able to necessarily understand where the other person's coming from because we don't have those same shared experiences. However, when we get into interactions between autistic people, then we see a much higher um, levels of satisfaction with um, those interactions, um, sim- and even higher than um, interactions between um, neurotypical and neurotypical people, um, just because of that shared experience. And um, when we look at some older writing of autistic people, um, uh, Jim Sinclair has um, some really good um, information in some of their original writing um, about the first time that autistic people who got together in a conference setting, like, um, in their own conference setting, and, um, in, and this is in the history of A&I, if anybody wants to look that up, um, but it talks about just being with other autistic people in a room together, um, how that was just such an eye-opening experience because we could, we, automatically know when we're in company and we know each other are are autistic, then um, then we can let down our guard. We're not constantly on edge. Um, So, yes, um, so when we put all these things together, then we start to look at, um, and I'm going to go back and forth between slides at this point, when we look at autistic behaviors, then we're looking at a conglomeration of all these things coming together. Um, so let's, uh, so thinking about it in terms of um, our restrictive and repetitive behaviors, let's start there first, um, with our STEM ink. Um, We are looking at getting that um, sensory information in. We are looking at getting... Um, sometimes we're also looking at blocking sensory information out. Um, When we're seeing meltdowns from from things suddenly changing, um, it's important to remember that this is a a mixture of things. It's not just um, that we don't want to change and that we don't want to go to the new thing. We are wanting to um we are our brains are actually physically having a difficult time stopping thinking about and this is where this working memory piece comes in right if if something's cued that working memory piece on a particular subject then we're gonna have a harder time getting our brains to stop that because we already at are at a higher than typical working memory baseline right and so then you put into that that we also have this trouble shifting then we're going to need time to process that that change is occurring but also time to process the fact that um we are not able to shut off those thought processes and so that's going to be a separate step um and then we also have the problems with initiating the next task um Or any task. Um, This is something that we just know from science that um, we have this problem with initiation. So when we're looking at these um, moments in time where somebody is having a whole lot of difficulty going from this one thing to this next thing. um, This is why I don't really like it, like the goals, talking about it from, from Preferred task to non preferred task because this is going to be a global issue, but we see it even more so when we have a non preferred task. And why is that? Well, the non preferred task is probably something that's already inaccessible. Um, if it's a writing task, we might be having trouble with that organization and planning of our motor movements to write. We might be having a hard time feeling our bodies um, to know where our pen or how much pen pressure we're supposed to be putting down. Um, we may be having a hard time organizing those thoughts into a pattern that we can actually produce something. Um, so those are all going to make the shifting and the stopping thinking about the other thing and the starting of the task difficult. So what can we do? Well, this is where we get into accommodations. So what are some of our accommodations um, that we typically do? And this is some these are things that um within your um antecedent behavior or antecedent strategies, these are things you're already doing. But I'm trying to give you a basis of why it helps. Um so things like a visual schedule so that we know what's coming, so that we um can shift from this one thing to the next thing uh things like graphic organizers so that we can organize our thoughts so we're not having to do it all in our head before we have put it down and we don't have to think of the steps that we need to do with that organization Um, with a graphic they're already in existence then you can just fill in for those things so that you're not making those steps or that you're not having to create those steps if your children the children that you're working with are younger this may look a lot like um repetitive play because this can be repetitive play can be a lot easier to access because you're not trying to think of novel things and especially when you're getting into um these social skills that we were talking about over here, where already before you even get to kindergarten, you have all these social interactions that don't make sense because you're coming from a different standpoint. You are getting all the sensory information in. Mm. If you're in a play group, um, for instance, then you're looking at a kid that might be sitting over in the corner just observing everything because they don't know who to interact with, how to initiate that interaction. Um, And then once they get into that interaction, there is a much higher likeliness that they are going to be, um, what's a good word for this? Not shamed, but excluded, I guess is the best one. And it's not an intentional exclusion, but this plays into that original or that um, topic I was talking about with autistic or neurotypical people know that they don't want to be friends with an autistic person as soon as they see them. Um, And this is true for all age groups that the study looked at um, in elementary school, in high school and in adulthood um, and this is with people that had social skills um, instructions so it's not even about not knowing how to um, interact this is just based off of the way we look something about the way we look um, the whole you don't look autistic well apparently I do or else people would want to be my friends um, so we want to look at all these things as a global thing and rather than as these succinct things that we need to change the end product instead we're, we're talking about with antecedent strategies we're we're looking at how the how we can set up those accommodations and antecedent strategies are just basically accommodations but in the behavioral world um we can do things like our first then and first then does not necessarily necessarily need to be punitive or even um based in our reward framework first we're doing this podcast and then we're going to go back to the office this is a first then and there's nothing innately rewarding about going back to the office it is but it is the next thing in line and so this is something that my brain can prepare for Um, and as my brain prepares for this thing then I if I have trouble with these things then this is where we can get into um, teaching self-advocacy skills of okay I see this is coming and I'm struggling with this change that's upcoming because it's scary And we don't have to know why it's scary, just that it is scary. And so giving an ability to, or giving um, scripts or ways to communicate that is going to be of utmost importance. Uh, Okay, so yes, impacts on practice. Um, When we start to recognize that autistic people are not is not a lack of motivation and i i know that most people don't realize that maybe in aba that this is the way that we go with this Um, but when we automatically put in that we need reinforcers um, then we make it about motivation about why are we not motivated to do this well there's nothing that says that an autistic person isn't motivated Although we do know, like some self-determination theory says that the more that you um, give external rewards, then the more um, we can, we see an effect on internal or intrinsic motivation. Um, but if we're looking beyond um, that power dynamic that, that creates that, that issue, we're not looking at somebody that needs to willpower through these other struggles. Instead, we should be looking at what it is that's causing that. So I want to give an instance here um, where we're talking about a kid that can't stop moving to do an assignment. Maybe they're running all over the place. And I know that everyone sees this. um in their practice that this kid just can't stop to focus and so we try to give all these reinforcers and everything to make the kids stop but this kid has a sensory need that's not being met and so this is where we want to start working I, I highly advocate for BCBAs to work within multidisciplinary teams so bringing in an OT consult so we know exactly what those um those sensory processing pieces are so we can support those things within the environment um, and now obviously you can have ots that um, that don't want to necessarily do or that might want to do exposure therapy, but I would highly recommend not doing that because of what we do know from um, those studies on what the pain feels like or that. It, there is pain there when we're trying to force these specific um, norms. This is especially true with eye contact. Um, At least two or three of the um, studies I listed um, just talk about that negative perception or negative feeling when you have eye contact. Um, And we want to make sure that we are not creating goals that are harmful to a person because we want to make sure that they are able to access what they need to. So if sounds are physically painful we want to do headphones. Um, I normally for everyday life have tinted glasses because sensor or visual sensory information is just really overwhelming. Um, but we can't know all this and BCBAs are not um, this is not their area of expertise. This is where this is why we want to bring in the occupational therapist. Um, and then the same with our executive functioning piece. Um, we want to bring in, or we want to understand the ways that that is impacting a person, especially when we look at autistic people um, having a high co-occurrence of um, of ADHD, which brings in a whole new set of um, concerns, um, namely our inhibition. our um, in autistic people who have, or are also ADHD, um, working memory actually tends to be um, worse than in the general population. Um, and then we also have um, more problems with um, self-monitoring because um, ADHD tends to be a lot more um, time agnostic, so being able to even um, recognize that time frame to be able to do things in.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Three Pi Squared and the products and services that we provide, please go to www.threepisquared.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe or add it to your favorites. This way, you won't miss any episodes. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching Three Pi Squared. Thank you so much for listening.